Well, we came to worship Christ. I believe we've done that, and so we want to hear from him this morning. So why don't you take your Bibles, and uh, you get to go with me to uh, the book of Mark. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, our ushers are coming around. They would love to give you one. You can just get their attention. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you, and uh, or you can follow along with us on the Bible app. And uh, I feel like it's probably uh, a good thing for me to let you know that Um, Since we didn't have church last week, I am just going to tack the 40 minutes that I should have had last week on to this week. Um, I'm not really asking for your permission. I'm just letting you know that that's going to happen. Cool. Uh, So, Kelly, you can uh, can start your stopwatch. I'm I'm prepared. All right. So we want you to be here. Mark chapter 15. Uh, Believe it or not, next week we are actually going to finish preaching through the entire book of Mark. And uh, I know we've taken a lot of breaks throughout the year, uh, but it has taken us 34 weeks to preach through this. And so I think that's kind of a a cool deal. And I'm going to tell you, I am actually really fired up about February. We're going to take the month of February and just kind of take a break of rest and and, and, uh, refocus uh, on the presence of the Lord. And I can't wait for that. And then in March... We will begin a new book in the Old Testament. Uh, That's going to be awesome. But today, here we are in Mark chapter 15. And uh, this is really kind of the culmination of the story that we've been looking at ever since the halfway point of the book at chapter 8. Jesus turned his eyes to uh, Jerusalem, and he knew exactly what was waiting for him when he got there, right? He knew that when he'd get there, he was going to face the cross, which is what he told us ahead of time. In fact, he said this, this is kind of the key verse of the whole book, chapter 10, verse 45. He said, even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's why he came. We saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he was in, I mean, he was in agony. He was just struggling. But, but the reason that he was wrestling was not just the anticipation of, of the physical suffering that he was going to endure on the cross. The reason that he was wrestling with that is he was beginning to get his first taste of the wrath of God as he was becoming our sin bearer. And in that moment, let's just be honest, it was in his humanity, he was feeling the temptation to avoid the suffering and avoid going through that. But our, our Lord and Savior overcame that temptation, and he submitted himself in obedience to the will of God. And here we find him, Mark chapter 15, at the cross. So um, I know that um, when, when, when you know a, a story really, really well, the urgency uh, to pay attention is kind of at a, a low level. Like if, you know, if you've been re-watching one of your favorite movies for like the hundredth time, you can afford to kind of multitask and even uh, kind of miss a few scenes because you know what's happening, right? You're like, I, I, I know this story back and forth. This happens when I uh, read books to my youngest son, Javen, and uh, one of, one of uh, his favorite books for a little while was Pout Pout Fish. Have you read Pout Pout Fish? Excellent read. Um, might be a little awkward if you don't have kids, but I do highly recommend you check it out, right? So, so here's the deal. We'd be reading Pout Pout Fish, and, and uh, most of the time, he'd get like a couple pages in, and he'd be like, bored with that. Let's just skip half of the book, which worked because we knew the story backwards and forwards. It's okay. Here, here's, here's the deal. I know that you know the story of the cross, okay? 
But don't let the familiarity with this story cause you to miss the message and the need to respond, maybe afresh, in in a new way, that, that God would help you see what he accomplished for us on the cross and a need to respond to that, right? Mark has been uh, building up to this moment, not just as, as a climax for a fascinating story, but as proof of who Jesus is, and we have to respond to that. So that's, the, that's really the big idea. The question that I want to ask you is, how will you respond to Jesus? How are you going to respond to Jesus? Well, let's read, okay? Uh, Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 1. We've got a lot of texts we want to read this morning, but here's what he says. As soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have him Release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him! And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! And so Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus... He delivered him to be crucified. Father, I pray that you'd uh, make yourself real to us again this morning. We know this story, and yet um, we need this. Uh, I pray that you'd remind us of what you endured for us in our place. God, I pray that our eyes would be drawn to Jesus, and that out of that, um, we would become more like him. I pray that you'd help us to be obedient to your word this morning and have a a, a fresh passion and love for Christ and that you get the glory in all of that. In Jesus' name, amen. How will you respond to Jesus? Three questions. Here's one. Note this if you're taking notes. Will you believe no matter what others say? You see that in the example of Pilate? The text tells us that um, as soon as it was morning, they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. All right, so let me uh, put a map up here, and hopefully my laser pointer works. I mean, this is like half the reason I even put these maps up here. So uh, so there's just so much going on here in in the hours leading up to the cross, and we don't want to, like, lose track of what's happening, okay? So we saw that that Jesus was arrested here in Gethsemane, and, and then they took him down here to the palace of the high priest. We saw that last time, and that's, that's really the house of, of, of Caiaphas. And now the religious leaders have been up 
all night. They've been up late, and they've been accusing him and condemning him to death. The problem is they don't really have the power and the authority to issue the death penalty. And so now they're going to have to take him here to the palace of Herod. This is where Pilate will put Jesus on trial. And really, this is the first time we've seen Pilate in the book of Mark. So let's, let's just talk about who that guy is, all right? Pilate is the Roman governor of Judea. He's not a Jew. In fact, he doesn't really like uh, the Jews. And he's not normally stationed here in Jerusalem. He actually lives uh, right here in this place. I've got a picture of uh, Caesarea. I I got to tour this place. It's a beautiful place, all right? This is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. You can kind of see the ruins of a palace that that, uh, Herod had built there. That's where Pilate lives. This is where he uh, is normally stationed, but uh, he's only needed in Jerusalem during feasts when there's going to be a whole lot of people all at once, like the Passover. That's probably why he's here. Uh, But it was here in Caesarea uh, that there was this inscription. You can see this here. you can see the inscription in Latin. Uh, you can probably read that. Uh, the, the, uh, the name of Pontius Pilate, it says the prefect of Judah. So, so a prefect or a governor meant it was his job to enforce Rome's power and Rome's rule in this area. So that's why uh, the, it tells us that they were bringing Jesus to him early in the morning. Uh, part of that's because the Roman officials just wanted to get their business taken care of in the morning and, uh, so they could get on to other things uh, throughout the day. Some of that is because the religious leaders just want Jesus dead ASAP. So uh, let's get him first thing on the docket. Let's get this taken care of. And they brought him. Uh, in fact, I have a picture here. This is uh, the spot. Uh, this is just outside the, the modern walls uh, of the old city in Jerusalem. This is the place where Herod's uh, palace was, and, and that is the spot where Pilate's Bema seat stood. The Bema seat was where he would have stood judging Jesus. And you can see these steps in the next picture. This is the spot where Jesus is standing right here, likely the area where he is being tried by Pilate because Pilate really has the power and the authority to put him to death. Okay, so we're having a, a, a civil trial here, and the text is telling us that, that, that Pilate's just going to get right to business. He's not messing around. Verse 2, he just goes right to the heart of the matter. Are you the king of the Jews? I don't care about your teaching. Don't, don't care about the miracles and that talk about, like, uh, you know, destroying the temple. Not interested. The thing that he's concerned about is if Jesus really is a legitimate political threat, well, then we might have to take him out. So are you the king of the Jews? And uh, The hard part, the problem for Jesus, if he answers yes, uh, Pilate's just going to misunderstand what that means because he's not just an earthly king like Pilate's thinking about, right? So he says, you have, you have said so, like, like you said it. Pilate's right, he just doesn't know it. But... All of these 
accusations and charges are brought by the religious leaders. I mean, you could just imagine them. They're, 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 they're throwing everything that they can think of at him. It's pretty obvious they hate him and they just want him dead. And they've had a hard time all night long trying to get their story straight and, and get this together. And their case is kind of chaotic. In fact, you can kind of picture a, a, a lawyers that are fumbling around with files and papers are spilling out all over the place as they're looking for pieces of evidence and they're just yelling in anger at the defendant. and I'm sure Pilate can see right through that, right? He's not really stupid. He can see what's happening, but Jesus stands in silence. Like a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And verse 5 tells us that in response to that, Pilate was amazed. Now that word, Amazed is the same word that Mark had used in chapter 5. It's the same reaction that the Gentiles had when they heard the testimony of the man who had been possessed by a demon. You remember that guy? I mean, that guy was like crazy. And, and, and he was going nuts, and Jesus cast out this demon, and he wanted to follow Jesus, but Jesus told him, no, go home and tell people there all that the Lord has done for you. And as this former demoniac, is, is, is telling his testimony. The Gentiles that heard it, the text said, they, they, they marveled. It's the same reaction that Pilate has here. He sees something incredible in Jesus. What he doesn't see is evidence uh, to uh, condemn him and convict him. So um, he's trying to figure out a way that he can get out of this. There, there might be a way if we, if we release one of the prisoners, right? And so he brings out Barabbas. Barabbas is this notorious murderer. And i got to be thinking, in, in, in Pilate's mind, he's thinking this is a no-brainer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put before them this awful murderer and, and this guy Jesus who's not really evil. He doesn't see anything wrong with him. The, 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 the reason he does that is because the text says, verse 10, he perceived that it was out of envy. He could tell that the only reason these religious leaders hate Jesus is because of his popularity and the impact of his ministry, and they don't like that. The problem is he just uh, kind of underestimated just how much they hate him and their resolve to kill him. And so these guys, you can just see the evil in their hearts. They're going around the crowd and stirring everybody up to ask for uh, Barabbas to be released and then they call for Jesus to be crucified. And then we get a little bit of insight into Pilate's character. And here's where this kind of gets concerning. Verse 14. Um, Pilate just, he's like, why? What, what evil has he done? Listen, listen. Pilate is not being misled. And he's not ignorant. He can see the injustice here, that Jesus doesn't deserve any of this. The problem is all the crowds and these people are putting pressure on him to respond in a certain way. And so uh, verse 15, this is just such an indictment. It says, Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, he gives them what, he, what, what they want. He chooses to not do the right thing because it's not the popular thing. We would call that uh, the fear of man. This is where you 
you know, you end up kind of like afraid of what other people think and their uh, opinions and you want people's approval and so you're, you're trying to make them happy and, and you're trying to avoid criticism and, and so in the midst of that, trying to avoid that criticism, you want people to like you and so you, you end up even giving into pressure and, and going against what you know is right because you'd rather face that than have to face the consequences of their disapproval and people not liking you. This can actually slip into all of us, can it? I mean, we dump on Pilate because what a horrible thing to do, but maybe, um, maybe you have a hard time saying no. You ever have a hard time saying no because, I mean, you want um, to be trustworthy and, 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 and you don't want to disappoint people and you want to earn their respect by your ability to handle it all and, and you've got this and, and, and so there's a streak of people pleaser in you. And that's kind of coming from a heart of fear of man. Or, or, or when other people's opinions and, and what they're going to say and what they're going to think actually impacts and changes your actions. Like you're looking around at what everybody else is wearing and how they're wearing their hair and, and, and that's going to change yours and, 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 and you're looking at how people are going to think and what they're going to respond to the way that you post on social media and, and, and the image that you're trying to portray and, and you're concerned about uh, that, that, that image with who you're hanging around with. Or, or maybe you find yourself kind of talking or even joking differently at work depending on who's around at the time. If, if, there's a, if there's a constant awareness in your mind of what other people are thinking, that might be a clue that the fear of man is kind of lurking in your heart. Or, or it might be um, when you're guarded with people or easily embarrassed or um, you kind of avoid opening up and maybe even hide behind a, a shy personality because you're afraid of people's opinions and, and not living up to people's expectations and, and you're concerned with self-esteem and, and feeling uh, depressed about yourself or, or, or even worse, like you're, you're looking around and comparing yourself and you're kind of full of pride because you're looking around at how everybody... Listen, listen. When, when we elevate the opinions of people to a place of, of prominence, we, we almost become controlled by them, don't we? And I've shared with you uh, the helpful book by Ed Welch, When People Are Big and God is Small. I, I think he hits uh, the definition right here, and this might be the real danger. He says, the fear of man is when we replace God with people. Here is the innocent son of God standing before Pilate, but he's more concerned about what the, what the crowds and what the people are going to think than about what God would think. Their opinions and, and what they're going to say is, is bigger and more important to him than doing what is right and, and doing what God would approve of. And even if you want to say that, like, well, this is just kind of like a, a you know, a political, politically savvy move that he's making here because he's trying to avoid uh, starting a riot or, or, or causing more trouble. Even if that's the case, it's still injustice for the sake of convenience, and the end doesn't justify the means. The fear of man is a snare, and instead of believing, seeing something and believing it, he gives in to the pressure of what everybody else is saying, and he hands Jesus over to die. And I think that's, that's kind of a lesson for us too, right? Will you believe no matter what others say? 
Or are you going to be like Pilate and capitulate to the crowds and, and the pressure there? How many of you have found that believing in Jesus is not always popular, is not always even respected? That if you're going to stand for Christ and believe in the Bible and what it says and, and, and live by that, that there are consequences to that. That some people are going to reject you. Some people are going to straight up hate you for that. And they might make um, unfair assumptions and even lump you into other groups of, you know, like people that vote a certain way or, or that don't believe in science or that hate gays or that judgmental hypocrites or whatever the case may be. And because you feel that, that, that pressure of people's uh, opinions, there's this temptation to really question if this is really all true and, and, and waver in your faith. You feel that? I know it's easy on Sundays. We're like, hey, we got all sorts of people around here that believe. But when you are surrounded by people that intimidate you, or, or when you're surrounded by people that, that you like them and you want them to approve of you and you care about what they think and you want that approval, the fear of man can have a powerful impact on your faith. Just ask Peter. We just saw that last time, right? All it took was a servant girl to cause him to deny Jesus. See, it's not just Pilate. Even disciples struggle with this. So how are you going to respond to Jesus? Do you know, listen, do you know that the way to overcome the fear of man is to have a greater fear? Is to have an appropriate and biblical fear of God. You see, the more you're listening to the crowds and what they say and their opinions and just swarmed with those messages, their thoughts and their opinions are going to become more important to you. But the more we're listening to the word of God, the more we're going to see clearly and God is going to be elevated back to the position of prominence where he belongs and the gospel is going to set you free from that. You're going to realize that our God is holy. There's no God like him. And in his presence, there ought to be a sense of, of awe and reverence and, and fear. And yet, in Christ, we are forgiven. And so the terror of his wrath is taken away. And in Christ, you are loved. And there's nothing that could ever change that. And so our love and our fear for God, then, drives out the fear of man and it emboldens our faith. Yes, this is true. And we want to be bold witnesses for Christ, no matter what anyone else is going to say. But that leads us to the second, second question. If you're taking notes, note this. Will you take up your cross if mocked? Will you take up your cross? Can I show you Jesus doing this? Let's, let's look at it. Starting in verse 16, it says the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking him on his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of 
a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. I know you know this scene. I know it's very familiar. I know you've seen depictions of the cross before, but, but I want you to notice that uh, the emphasis is not on the, the physical horrors of the cross. Mark's audience, you remember, he's, he's writing to believers uh, that are living probably in the city of Rome. And so they're all too familiar with the Roman Empire symbol of terror, this, this, this form of, uh, of execution and torture that they would use to break uh, the will of the people that they had conquered and, and make an example out of criminals. Honestly, this was disgusting. And, and, and Mark doesn't actually go into all the graphic and gory details. Instead, his emphasis is on how they made a mockery out of Jesus in his death. You see that? I mean, these soldiers here, they're just cruel bullies. And they pull Jesus up in front. It's probably about 600 men, and they're, they're dressing him up like a king, and they're laughing at him. They're making fun of him. They're beating him. They're spitting on him. They're just humiliating him. And then they take him outside exposed and hang him on a cross as a, as a public spectacle of, of shame. And they crucify him in between two robbers as if he's really one of them and deserving of this. And then it says that those who passed by derided him. And they're wagging their heads. They're just insulting him. And the chief priests and the scribes, they're mocking him. You just hear them like sneering and rubbing it in his face. They're doing what Psalm 1 says. They're sitting in the seat of scoffers. They're just reveling in his humiliation. And, and even the robbers, it says, the, the, the guys that are crucified next to him, even they're reviling him, they're taunting him, they're insulting him. There's just this overwhelming sense that they're making Jesus a joke. Is this not like the worst thing that you've ever seen? When we think about what Christ did for us there. And yet, I don't know how this is even possible, but it's also one of the most moving and beautiful things you've ever seen. Because we know why he's doing it. Don't forget that Jesus is allowing this to happen. That, that he has, uh, Scripture says, literally submitted himself, humbled himself to this. And he endured all of it willingly for you and for me. That he was willing to be mocked and shamed by men so that we could be forgiven and welcomed by God. Only Jesus could do this. But I also want you to know that, that his death, okay, um, we're thankful for what he's accomplished for us, and nobody else could do that. But he's also giving us an example. 
Because right in the middle uh, of the story of his humiliation, there's an invitation for us to follow him. Look at verse 21. You see it there? It says that these soldiers that are taking him out to crucify him, they compelled a passerby, uh, this man named Simon, to come and carry his cross. So, so he, doesn't, he doesn't really emphasize all the graphic horror and, and, and the physical pain, but he doesn't diminish the agony and the suffering that Jesus is going through either. Because apparently uh, Jesus has been tortured so severely that at this point he physically can't even take the cross up the hill to Golgotha. That's undoubtedly because of what Pilate did to him in verse 15. It said that Pilate had him scourged. That, that word meant flogging, where, where they would take uh, the, the prisoner and tie him to a post. And, and with, with him exposed, they would take uh, a whip made out of strips of leather. And, and in, embedded in the leather, they would have uh, jagged pieces of, of bone and, and metal. And so as they would uh, whip and, and beat uh, the, the prisoner, those, those pieces would latch onto the skin and just rip away the flesh. And, and they're doing this over and over and over until, until their insides are exposed. And, and, and we're told that that was often so intense that the victim didn't even survive. And so at this point, Jesus has been stripped of his dignity. His strength is all but gone. He, he's basically just a mangled and bloody mess, and he needs help even carrying his cross. And so Mark highlights this man named Simon. But I want you to notice some of the details that he gives us about this guy. He tells us that um, Simon is from Cyrene. Now, I've got this for you on a map because I think this is pretty cool to be able to picture this, okay? Uh, here is uh, Jerusalem all the way over here in the east, if this will work. There we go. And uh, Cyrene is all the way up here in North Africa, even west of Egypt. Kind of easy to see how the gospel is going to spread through this, isn't it? And, and apparently, this guy must have been a Jew that was just coming into uh, Jerusalem for the Passover. So he tells us he's Simon of Cyrene. He's coming in from the country, and he includes this kind of weird detail. He says he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Now, why does he tell us that? Have you ever had a friend uh, tell you stories that just uses too many details? You know what I'm talking about? And, and, and you know, they'll, they'll start telling you about this. Uh, that one time, I think it was like a Thursday night at like 6, maybe it was 7. Actually, it might have been a Wednesday. I think it was Thursday, probably Thursday. And I had that red shirt on. It had some lettering. It might have been a blue. You know what I'm talking about? You're like, just tell the story already. So is, is, that, is that what Mark is doing here? Like, why, why include? This seems kind of an odd detail to include here, right? Unless, unless the believers in Rome to whom Mark is writing actually know Alexander and Rufus. I mean, like me telling you, man, this crazy thing happened. We, this guy came in who's so funny. He's, a, he's actually a friend of Phil's. And you'd be like, oh, we'll just go ask Phil because we know him. He, these guys are eyewitnesses, or at least they know the story because they're getting it straight from their dad. And Mark is basically telling them, you, you know these guys. Go ask them. They'll tell you. So apparently... Alexander and Rufus, which, by the way, I just need to say this. We're, we're like in the beginnings of a baby boom in our church, and I would just like to commend that name to you, parents. Um, that's a boss name right there. Am I right? Like, um, 
I'm just waiting for the day we're, we're dedicating Rufus up here. That'll be awesome. But apparently Alexander and Rufus are, are known in the church in Rome. In fact, check this out. A Romans chapter 16, verse 13, at the end of the letter, Paul, Paul often does this. He, he writes a letter, and he's going to give a shout-out to some people that he wants to say hey to. Look at, look at who he says, uh, Romans 16, verse 13. He says, greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Now, we don't know for certain, but it's possible that this, this Rufus, this believer in Rome and friend of Paul is the same man whose dad carried Jesus' cross. So just, just imagine what that moment must have been like for those boys if they actually were there watching their dad go through that. Or even if they were listening to the story years later and how God had worked there, I can't help wondering if God used this experience to make a massive impact on their faith and draw them to himself. They may be believers in Jesus because they saw their dad carrying the cross. Simon Simon is forced to carry the cross, which is actually a powerful picture of Jesus' call to discipleship. Here's here's what he had told them. Uh, Chapter 8, you remember this, verse 34. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Now, Simon may not have understood the significance of what's happening, but they're, they're, they're seeing everybody mocking Jesus in his suffering, completing a work that only he could accomplish, Jesus is also leaving us an example to follow. This is what our Lord suffered for us, and we will too if we follow him. So are you willing? Are you willing to take up your cross even if you're mocked, even if it means you're going to have to go against conventional wisdom and and what's trendy and what's popular and and, and face shame and and ridicule and be the butt of the jokes and and be unfairly criticized and and labeled and and become the victim of wrong assumptions or misunderstandings, look like an idiot in the eyes of the world, have people ostracized and not want anything to do with you. If they hated Jesus and wanted to humiliate and mock him, they're going to do the same thing to those who follow him. But the question is, do you believe and have you become convinced and found that Jesus is worth it no matter what those who hate him would say or do to you. And don't underestimate the impact that you can have on those who are watching your example as you follow the example of Christ. Did Alexander and Rufus come to Christ because of this? I don't know. But who knows whether your kids will come to love Christ and pick up their cross because they saw the power of the gospel on display in your life. And the people that that you know, that you have influence over, that you come into contact with on an everyday basis, as they see you giving your life for Jesus, they're going to see Christ in you. They may mock you but we pray that they'll understand that Jesus is no joke. Let's keep reading. Verse 33, we'll finish this text here. When the the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, My God, why have you forsaken me? 
And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take, take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last breath. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, watch this, watch this. He said, truly, this was the Son of God. The question for you is, will you Confess him as Lord and Savior. You see him hanging there? It says he's there from the sixth hour to the ninth. That's in the middle of the afternoon. That's noon to three. In the middle of the day, it's darkness. So it's pretty obvious this is a supernatural, ominous sign of, of judgment. We're, we're now coming to that, that moment that had caused Jesus himself to, to pause in agony at Gethsemane and ask if there was any possible way that he wouldn't have to go through that, that, this, that this cup could be taken from him. And he's crying out here on the cross, but he's not crying out from pain. He's not just crying out from the physical exhaustion. He's crying out because of something that was so much worse than, than the pain that he's going through, than the, the torment of, of scraping the open lacerations of his mutilated flesh against wood as he's pulling up his body on the, on the bones through those nails in his hands just to suck air. It's worse than that. The reason that he's crying out, he's crying out in horror because he's drinking from the cup of wrath of God. He's being judged by God. God. And he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's the Son of God that has always enjoyed a loving, intimate relationship with the Father for all of eternity, and now the Father re rejects him, forsakes him. It means to, to reject or to refuse to accept or even to acknowledge. So in this moment, instead of looking up from the cross into his father's smiling face of acceptance and, and love and favor, he looks up and he sees in his father's eyes a flash of anger and displeasure and his anger and justice against evil and his wrath is poured out on him. And I got to tell you, I honestly don't understand how this works, how it's possible that this could happen to one of the persons in the Trinity. But I believe that somehow the Son of God was experiencing separation from the Father. And he says, my God, why? But we know why, right? The reason he's going through this is for us. Tim Keller has said it this way, that Jesus was forsaken by God so that we would never have to be. That the judgment that should have fallen on us fell instead on Jesus. And he uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. He did it. He died. Mark's been telling us that this had to happen. In fact, like everything we've been reading, everything we've been studying has been, has been leading to this moment. But then verses 38 and 39 actually give us two more events that, that kind of help bring clarity to the meaning of the cross. The first is that 
Mark tells us the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. That moment, that, that curtain was the thing that separated sinful people from a holy God. And it's pretty obvious the way Mark's writing that, that God's the one that did that. What he's saying is now in Jesus and because of his death, the way is open. And, and sinful people can freely enter into the presence of God. That even though you deserve judgment, today you can be forgiven and can be completely free and enjoy a relationship with God. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has accomplished for you. And then verse 39. The second thing here is that we see this centurion. The, the, the centurion's looking up at him and he and it says that he saw that in this way he breathed his last. So remember, this guy's a professional soldier. He's seen all sorts of people die before. But there's something different in Jesus' humility and passion that causes him to say, truly, this man was the Son of God. Now, up to this moment in the book of Mark, no man or woman has actually spoken those words. Not a, not a Jew, not even a disciple. It ends up being a Gentile. A Roman soldier, an enemy, becomes the first one to make the right confession. Anybody can make this confession now. Jesus is the Son of God. And he became a man so that he could die. But because he was the Son of God, he was the perfect, innocent, spotless sacrifice who could give his life as a ransom for many. Begging the question, will you confess him as Lord and Savior? Father, I thank you so much for the cross. We thank you again that you would send your son to this. We, we recognize that this was your will. This was your plan. Isaiah tells us that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That you did this because there was no other way to rescue us from our own sin that you found a way to destroy all evil without destroying us. So we give you praise for that. Thank you for what Jesus has accomplished. And while we're praying right now, I just, maybe, maybe you have never done that and accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I want to encourage you right now. Today is the day of salvation. He is extending that invitation to you to respond. If you've never done that and, and, and you've kind of just been trying to be a good person and go to church and read your Bible and do the right thing and hoping that that's going to be enough in the end, uh, now's the time to realize that there's no way that you could save yourself. The only way that you can be saved is through what Jesus did for you. And so you can pray right now where you're at. Just tell the Lord that you know you're a sinner. You know that you deserve the, the judgment of God. But that you believe that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. Ask him to save you now. And if you respond and ask him that, he will. And those of us who have trusted in Jesus, 
I, I hope that this gives you a, a renewed, um, a fresh passion and love for Christ and what he did for you. Lord, thank you so much that you would care for us. What is man that you are mindful of him? So I pray that you are honored even now as we remember what you've done for us on the cross. Draw us to yourself. Be near to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.